Hi, I'm Fiona. I'm the CEO of Farmers for Climate Action. You're listening to the Over the Fence podcast by Farmers for Climate Action. Earlier this week, I had a chat with the Shadow and Energy Minister, Chris Bowen, about opportunities for emissions reductions and plans for agriculture. While I didn't get a chance to discuss Labor's planned $500 million fund to encourage investment in the farm sector, that was announced later, I did get to hear a lot more about where Chris sees the biggest opportunities to lower emissions across the economy, as well as ag and climate change more generally. Thank you so much for chatting to me for our Over the Fence podcast, Chris. Um, Great pleasure, Fiona. Nice to join you. (laughs) I thought as a starting point, um, I know that you've not grown up on a farm, but do you have any memories of visiting farms when you were young you'd like to share with us? Uh, yeah, we did have friends. I had a friend, a family friend. My godfather actually ran a very large uh, chicken farm um, back in the day, which was then in in um, in Kellyville, which is now a residential area, but then it was farms. And my wife comes from a, a, a family, a, 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 fam, a farming family as well. So, uh, yes, I um, am aware of, uh, I have spent some time on farms, but I can't claim to have too much mud on my boots personally, but um, it's a beautiful thing to uh, visit a farm in any event. What do you reckon, from your viewpoint, what do you reckon the biggest challenges are that are facing farming at the moment? Well, from my point of view, I mean, there are many, many challenges, but none is more important than climate change because it is the big sort of driving factor, which is not going to go away. I mean, prices will go up and down, other issues will, will come and go, but climate change is the challenge and opportunity of our time, right? So I can't really get past climate change and the need for climate action when it comes to it. But almost any problem in the world um, really starts to come back to climate, but particularly for farmers um, who love our country, love their country, love, love the land that they farm and see it changing before their eyes. Uh, in my experience, there's a myth that sort of farmers are against climate action and the people in rural and regional Australia aren't on board. It's just not true in my experience. And so I think, I think we should be listening to farmers and, um, and talking to them about the opportunities that come with uh, climate action as well. Fantastic. So we're very, yeah, we would agree with you. We think that climate change is the big, big challenge facing ag. We know that farmers in the Murray-Darling Basin have access to um, an average of 40% less water each year as a result of climate change based on 2000s. Um, uh, we see that agriculture is doing a lot to reduce its own emissions, to do what it can. We see there's really big emission reduction opportunities within energy and transport and that these need to happen this decade in order for farmers to continue to farm into the future and continue to feed the world. Where do you see those big opportunities within energy and transport? What are the, what's the lowest hanging fruit here? Well, I think you're 100% right, and, and it's the same approach that we take to our policy development. The policy we released last year is really sector-by-sector sector policy, so it's not an economy-wide approach, one-size-fits-all, it's what works in each sector. So in uh, transport, it really comes down to electrification. Passenger vehicles is the obvious low-hanging fruit. That's the easiest part of it. We've got to make a, a fast transition to electric vehicles, and People want to, in my experience now, but the, the, the now demand for, for electric vehicles is very solid. 
we've got a policy to uh, reduce the price of electric vehicles to make them more affordable by taking taxes off them, which accompanied by the state rebates really makes electric vehicles more affordable. We've got a deal of work to do on charging infrastructure as well, and we work with the states on charging infrastructure. That's particularly an issue for people travelling long distances. Um, but I also I think there's a chicken and egg issue there because the more electric cars we get in the system, the more charges that will come on as a result of private sector adjusting. So uh, destination charging, you know, people, whether it's a restaurant to say you can come to a restaurant and charge while you're eating or a gym or a concert facility or a cinema, um, being able to charge um, when you're stopped, not stop when you charge, I think will come about as we increase the number of electric vehicles. There's a bigger challenge for longer haul and bigger vehicles. There will be some electrification there. I've just last week um, travelled in a very large electric truck, for example, um, which gets good range. You can carry a lot of things. But hydrogen will really um, play a bigger role in the longer, bigger-term issues um, in relation to transport. So it's really I think we need both options on the table and individual companies and providers will make a decision about what's best for them, hydrogen or uh, electrification, and that includes aeroplanes. You know, we'll have an electric plane in the not-too-distant future for shorter for, for shorter passenger journeys, say Sydney, Canberra, but for longer-haul journeys, it's very much going to be hydrogen. Similar story with shipping. Now, in energy and, in, and electricity, it really comes down to, by and large, two things, uh, transmission and storage. So the obvious thing is renewables, but that's happening, right, and it's going to happen more. And under our policies, we get to 82% renewables by 2030. But the two big unfinished pieces of the puzzle are storage and transmission. So just briefly on those, storage, you know, people say, oh, the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. But, yeah, that's right. But the rain doesn't always fall either. But we drink water. We can store water. We can store renewable energy. That's a big job. And batteries are part of it, but they're not going to do the job alone. Batteries are great for hours. They can keep you running through the night, but they won't keep you running through a wind drought or a sun drought. That's where we need batteries accompanied by green hydrogen and pumped hydro. And there's all sorts of new technologies coming on with pumped hydro too, you know, and putting um, a certain degree of minerals in the water so you don't need the big, steep uh, fall for pumped hydro to work. You can do it over a, a more gentler you know, terrain. And then there's green hydrogen, which has enormous opportunity. You'll hear a lot of hype about green hydrogen, but so we should. And green hydrogen, you know, the beauty of it is it can be stored indefinitely. Um, you know, batteries work for the short term, but you can, you can generate lots of excess renewable energy into green hydrogen and just hold it for when it's necessary. The other big benefit of it is it's exportable. So you can put it on a ship and take it to Singapore or Indonesia or where, where have you, uh, where they are hungry for renewable energy, but they, they can't generate that much of it themselves. So that's really the opportunity with storage. Now, in transmission, there's no transition without transmission. Our energy grid's not up to scratch. We can't get renewable energy from where it's produced to where it's consumed. We're going to need a massive upgrade to our transmission grid. That's going to be a government and private sector enterprise, but we've got a rewiring the nation policy, which will invest $20 billion um, in upgrading the energy grid based on the ISP, the integrated systems plan, to get that renewable energy from where it's produced to where it's consumed and make our system fit for purpose. So take, for example, electric vehicles, you know, they have great opportunities as mobile batteries as well. But if we all drove home at sort of seven o'clock at night and plugged our EV in, 
our energy grid's not going to cope. So we need a massive upgrade to our grid to help us with this electrification process. And you've got an electric vehicle yourself, do you, Chris? I do, yes, yes. I've got a Tesla. Has that given you a different perspective on electric vehicles since I've been using that? Yeah, of course. Um, Yes, you do um, get the perspective and you do think about things slightly differently. So you have to plan your trip carefully. Um, We always have to plan our trips even with petrol and diesel, but you know, you do have to think about it just a little more in terms of where I'm go- where you're going and how to get there. I do drive a lot. I, dr- I live in the western suburbs of Sydney, so uh, that's an hour from my home into the city. I know hours are a short trip for somebody in the country, but it's a, you know, it's a slow trip and a lot of traffic. I also drive my electric vehicle between Sydney and Canberra, and it can do that trip without a charge. And, um, you know, but uh, you do sort of think about where the charges are, et cetera. So it does give a different perspective, but also to my point before about destination charging, you know, I now shop at a supermarket, which has got a charger downstairs. So I think we'll see more and more of that because, you know, supermarkets will want my business and the business of everybody with electric vehicles. So they'll, you know, if you drive from your farm into town, more and more you'll find the places you drive to will have fast charges available, I suspect, because they'll want your business. Um, I understand Australia has some of the lowest fuel emission standards in any OECD country. Would you consider raising those standards in order to, because I understand that's why um, we're not getting the full range of EVs coming into Australia, so it's really holding back that shift to electric vehicles. Would Labor consider um, raising those standards? No, that's not our policy because we're working with the manufacturers. Manufacturers have a voluntary emissions standards. We want to see that work. Um, you know, emissions that they have a voluntary code. We'd want to see that work, and we'd work with them on that. And uh, the manufacturers do say to us that just just having a government which gets it, you know, which gets the importance of electric vehicles makes a difference when they're in the boardrooms. You know, trying to get more electric vehicles sent to Australia, the, the head office, whether it be in Tokyo or Berlin or you know, Detroit says, well, hang on, you know, your government doesn't like electric vehicles. So there is a degree of work to be done there, but our, our focus has been on reducing the taxes to make them more affordable. We'll also convert the Commonwealth fleet to electric. So we'll have 75% of Commonwealth fleet purchases as electric by 2025, which is not far away. Again, manufacturers will respond to that. Commonwealth fleet is 10,000 cars. So, you know, that's a meaningful number, which they'll need to bring electric vehicles to Australia to compete for that quite lucrative contract, which they're all after. And the other benefit of that is too, the Commonwealth turns over its fleet every three years. So there'll be um, secondhand electric vehicles hitting the system within three years. Now you can't get a secondhand EV in Australia. That's a big challenge to affordability because uh, they're just not out there. So think about, you know, the most affordable cars are often secondhand. So um, when they hit the market three years after the Commonwealth buys them, that's a big um, increase in affordability of electric vehicles as well. Fantastic. And hey, listening to your interview on IRN this morning, I understand you've been in Morwell um, in recent times looking at some of the renewable energy developments there. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So the main action in Morwell and Gippsland is offshore wind. Of course, uh, Gippsland, as many of your listeners would know, is a very uh, intensive energy generation area, coal-fired power stations traditionally, but it's making the transition. There are onshore wind farms there, but very exciting is the proposal for offshore wind. Now, offshore wind has been 
unlawful in Australia until very recently, which is just craziness. Um, it should be a very important part of our mix because uh, it gets very windy off the coast. And also wind turbines in offshore wind farms tend to be very high, so it gets even windier up there. So it generates a lot of energy. So the proposal for an offshore wind farm off Morwell is called Star of the South. Many people accidentally, including me from time to time, call it Star of the Sea, but it's called Star of the South. And um, it's it would generate, if it was up and running today, it would be generating 20% of Victoria's energy needs. So one wind farm generating 20% of Victoria's energy needs. So these are massive things. And again, you don't have, of course, it's got to go through all the environmental approvals, all the necessary checks and balances, but also, you know, uh, if it's done properly, um, you either can't see them from the coast or they're just specks in the far distance. So communities tend to be very supportive of them as opposed to onshore wind, which can be quite controversial, as you know, in some areas. And the other big virtue of it is that Offshore wind is very job rich because because they're moving so fast, these turbines, the wind is so strong, they're moving so fast, they need a lot of maintenance. And because they're offshore, you need to get the workers out to maintain them. So there's a lot of shipping work. So this is where, you know, labour intensity is a good thing because it does generate a lot of work. So you get some people saying, oh, there's no jobs for renewable energy. It's just not true. But in offshore winds, are a good example where with the right policy settings, it can be very uh, job rich. There are about 15, 10 to 15 proposals for meaningful offshore wind farms around Australia at the moment. Um, I'd be you know, very keen to get cracking if we win the election to get as many of those as possible with all the necessary checks and balances up and running as soon as possible. And I've heard that Star of the South have got an agreement with your lawn to um, take some of their energy workers across to work at Star of the South. Um, have you heard about that? And do you think this kind of strategy might work in the Hunter Valley or central Queensland? Yeah, I, I am aware that they're, they're working together where they can, and that's a good thing. And um, the other virtue of offshore wind is that there are strong links to these areas, um, to traditional coal areas, because the offshore wind farm needs to feed into the national energy grid at some point. And where the national energy grid is strongest, where there's the most infrastructure to take the big amounts of energy that are generated offshore, is in areas where there are traditionally coal-fired power stations. So there's a clear link to the Latrobe Valley and the Hunter Valley um, for example, where um, the synergies are there. And, yes, um, there are there are many jobs to be created in offshore wind and it happens to be in the same areas that are traditional coal areas. So there's a lot of potential synergy there, absolutely. Jumping over to another, another climate-related topic, we've seen terrible flooding this year, particularly around Lismore in recent times. How can we support communities who are already struggling to be able to afford insurance and, you know, to kind of bounce or come back from events like this? And this is something that's increasingly on farmers' minds as they struggle to afford insurance, can't get insurance on for their own properties. Um, Fertiliser prices are going up. So how do we kind of address these issues as, we're, as we grapple with more and more frequent extreme weather events? So I think I, that's that's an excellent uh, question and we need to be dealing with adaptation as well as mitigation. Fancy words, but what it boils down to is that we've left it too late to stop climate change. We need to do our best to keep it at 1.5 degrees. 
check 1.5 alive, as the saying goes, or as close to it, but we've already warmed by a 1.1. Right? So climate change is happening. So there's also adaptation and resilience. So a couple of points. Partly that is emergency management and disaster recovery. So we have the emergency response fund, but it hasn't spent any money. No point in having money in a bank account and return deposit when you've got people going through what they're going through in Lismore, et cetera. So we, we've made a, a commitment to uh, spend that money as opposed to and spend it wisely and properly, um, but to actually see it hitting communities in a very beneficial way. There's also work that needs to be done in terms of resilience in terms of working together with states and territories on sensible measures and local government indeed uh, in, in planning issues, but also uh, insurance, as you said. Now, North Queensland is an example of where it hits, the rubber hits the road. Now, the federal government's got a reinsurance pool, which we support. Will it solve all the problems? We're not sure. The government hasn't released the modelling, but there will be issues um, need to be addressed in terms of, and, and more broadly. That's why insurance... The insurance sector, you know, has led the debate on climate change for, you know, 15 to 20 years because they get it. They know that they, they know that climate change is real, that they've got big costs as a result of climate change. And they, um, they've been leading that debate. So, yes, there's a good deal of work to do on adaptation as well as mitigation. And I guess where the election's going to be called any day now, um, what is Labor planning to do to support farmers if elected? So um, we very much see it as, as a joint opportunity, as you've said, Fiona, um, that we need to address. We've got policies to support things like asparagopsis seaweed. Look, it's not the answer to all the problems. And I know we have broadacre farming as opposed to feedlot farming in Australia by and large, but it's got to play a role. There's important work we can do in research and development on soils, for example. You know, soil uh, management is extraordinarily important. Um, so I'd very much see a partnership with farmers and with Julie Collins as our agriculture minister. Um, I would very much see this as an area where we can put the politics and the toxic identity politics and, um, you know, saying that rural people don't care about climate change, which is what the National Party says all the time. Um, we can put all that behind us as a country and get on with the job of working on things which improve farm productivity and farm profits and uh, happen to make a big contribution to reducing emissions as well. Okay, we've covered a lot of ground there, Chris. Is there anything else you'd like to say? No, look, I love your work. I, I follow Farmers for Climate Action um, on the social media. I think you do really great work, really important stuff. I've met with a lot of your guys on my travels around the country, including Goulburn, and uh, I just think, you know, uh, we really have to break down some of these myths that some of our opponents perpetuate that farmers aren't into climate action. Farmers are, are very much into climate action in my experience and um, it's a very good story to tell. So more power to your arm and hopefully if we are honoured enough to come first in the election in a few weeks' time, there are good things we can do together for the country. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for making the time to speak with us in what I'm sure is a very busy time. Absolute pleasure. I've been looking forward to it. Great to chat.